0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. 19th chapter of Matthew, so we are beginning a new chapter today. And as we begin this chapter, we also begin a study of, I think, what you would call the number one social issue in America today. Perhaps this is number one in America today. As you're well aware, marriage is a very hot topic right now. Uh, The Supreme Court in the past week has decided what they think is a marriage, and who can be legally married under the Constitution of the United States. We're going to talk about marriage for the next three weeks. And as we talk about this issue of marriage, we're, of course, speaking of families. Uh, Marriage has long been considered the beginning of a new family. And marriage is really, and family is the backbone of our society in America. And our churches depend upon strong family units. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century churchman, said, Nations are nothing but a collection of families. The good order of families depends entirely on keeping the highest standard of respect for the marriage tie and on the right training of children. Another writer said, It is no exaggeration to state that most of the ills of our society have their roots in family breakdowns. I think those are accurate statements of our society have their roots in family breakdowns. I think those are accurate statements, and they should press into our minds just how critically important that it is for us to do our very best to keep families together. In other words, these men have said, and we have to agree, that a good family is for the good order of society, it's for the good of our nation, it's for the good of our church... And so it's best that we very strongly consider the permanency of marriage. Now, most preachers, as they look at this passage of Scripture that we'll read today, they're driven to look at it as a passage that teaches about divorce. And, of course, it does teach that subject. But divorce is nothing more than just the failure of a marriage. It's making marriage temporary when God very clearly says in His Word that marriage is permanent. Now, in this passage, Jesus teaches about God's plan for marriage. And in his day, divorce was a very serious issue, just as it is in ours. Uh, In our country today, divorces are had for trivial reasons. And whether you believe this or not, it may have actually been worse in the time of Jesus because they would even use religion as a cloak for their divorces. They, They... even had it had gone so far as to think that you could do a righteous thing, you could be more righteous in getting a divorce than you would by keeping your family together. And so they believe that a divorced person now they're believers in the law and they believe the law is what help gets a person to heaven, and so they believe that a divorced person could actually be closer to God and be more of a candidate, you might say, for eternal life than a person who tried to keep their marriage together. Now, we're going to talk about some of those peculiarities over the next couple of weeks as we look at this text. Now, I'd like you then to look in Matthew chapter 19. I'll ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word. Matthew 19, beginning at verse number 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, "'Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause?' And he answered and said unto them, "'Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning "'made them male and female, and said, "'For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, "'and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? "'Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh.'" What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And he said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery." And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, as we look into this text today to understand what you'd have us to know. A very important topic. Open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me begin the message today by giving you a little bit of background. In verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings. Well, that, of course, references the discourse that Jesus had made in chapter 18. And there he taught just a beautiful lesson about how God loves his children. And especially noteworthy was the teachings that come immediately previous to this about forgiveness. And we learned at the end of chapter 18 that we need forgiveness. Forgiveness that, And that we're no more like Christ at any time than when we offer people forgiveness. Forgiveness is something desperately needed. And if you want to consider the main purpose of Christ coming into the world, of him becoming a man, it was in order for him to offer us forgiveness. Now, what better teaching could follow the 18th chapter as we start in chapter 19 talking about marriage? What is it? that helps us to hold marriages together other than just multiple acts of forgiveness. Now, if you're married, you know this to be true, don't you? It takes a lot of forgiveness in order to keep a marriage together. And the, the Word of God teaches that we need to have a selfless attitude like Christ had. And that's what helps us to keep marriage together. It's the willingness to go the extra mile to, to to help each other, to put in all efforts to make a marriage work. And so I suppose that we could say that we are most like Christ when we do our very best to hold our families together. When moms and dads love each other as the Bible prescribes, then we're being like Christ. And you might remember that, that one of the most beautiful pictures that were given in Scripture of the way that God loves us is when the Bible says that the Lord loves his church. And he uses marriage to be emblematic of his church. That familiar passage of Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And God compares that to the way that he loves us and how we are to love our spouses, our children, and our families. Now notice as this verse goes on, It says that after Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee. Now, you and I have spent a lot of time with Jesus in Galilee. Actually, we've spent more time on this than he was really there. Now, back in the fourth chapter, Jesus went to Galilee. This was right after his temptation in the wilderness. The devil had tempted him, and when that was over, Jesus went to Galilee... And he made Capernaum in Galilee, his home base of operations. So in real time, Jesus went to the region of Galilee about one year before the beginning of this 19th chapter. Now, we've spent over four years talking about what he did there. And we've seen all kinds of wonderful works that Jesus did. There were plenty of miracles. There was healing. He raised people from the dead. Demons were cast out. Multitudes were fed. Jesus uh, stilled storms and he walked on water. I mean, it was just a marvelous time for the people in Galilee as they received and saw this great light of the salvation of Christ that he brought there. He He brought such hope to hurting people and there was so much opportunity to come to Christ and believe in him. But the people have for the most part rejected him. They never really came out of the darkness of their sins. Well, now their time is over. And Jesus is ready to go to Judea, where he will be crucified. So salvation was there for them in Galilee, but they had rejected the one who was their only hope. Well, you can mark your Bibles right here in this place, because now we see a change in Jesus' ministry. Now we're entering into the last months of his life, and we come to the main purpose of him becoming man. He goes to Jerusalem to be crucified. Now, he spoke of his death in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed. He said, for this cause came I to this hour. There were no delusions in Christ's mind that what he was in the earth to do or why he came He came to die. That's the whole purpose. And so when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, for this cause came I to this hour. Now, the next part of the verse in our text says that Jesus came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. Now, that means that he traveled down the eastern side of the Jordan River, making his way to Jerusalem. And we have a map for you here this morning of of Israel. And I don't know how well you can see it, but right there in the center of your map, you see Galilee. And that's the Sea of Galilee towards uh, about three-quarters of the way to the top. Yeah, that's a good idea. Point that out. Then the Jordan River flows southward down towards the Dead Sea and just a little bit uh, east of Jerusalem. Now, what Jesus did then was to go down the eastern side of the Jordan River to the area that is beyond Jordan. And this is the area known as Perea. That's what Perea means. It actually means beyond. And so whenever you see beyond Jordan, that's Perea in the Bible. When it talks about being beyond the coast of Jordan, then it's talking about going down the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, Jesus would have some very interesting encounters as he went this way. This is actually the same area where John the Baptist uh, first started baptizing. It's also the way that Israel approached the promised land before they entered. They came down the eastern side or went along the eastern side of the Jordan, and they crossed the Jordan near to Jericho, and that's where they made their first conquest in Canaan, the city of Jericho. And Jesus has some interesting encounters as he goes that same way as he goes into Jericho before going down to uh, or up to Jerusalem. So we're talking about the eastern side. And that was the preferred route for uh, the Jews to travel from the region of Galilee down towards Jerusalem. Now, it was actually a harder route to travel. But they wouldn't take the western route because on the western side, as you can see, Uh, If you can point that out, Eric, there's Samaria. And they didn't want to go through Samaria. If they had to come down the western side, that meant going through Samaria. They hated Samaritans, and so they avoided. So they would take the, 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 the harder route. They would go down the eastern side of the Jordan. Well, Jesus had some great opportunities going that way. Now, sometimes he would go the western route, because you do remember that Jesus made it a special point in John chapter 4 to go into Samaria, and there he met the woman at the well, at the well of Sychar, Jacob's well at Sychar. And so he purposely went that way. But this time he goes down the eastern side, and there he would have opportunity to witness, to speak to the many pilgrims that were traveling from Galilee and northern regions down towards Jerusalem. This is the way that they would go. Well, as he was traveling, verse number 2 says that there were great multitudes that followed him. And as usual, Jesus was compassionate to the sick that were among them. He healed them. You see, Jesus was always doing what he did during his life all the way up to the end. He was always helping people. And with every act of compassion, he was giving them proof that he was the long-awaited messiah. You go into the Old Testament and you read about the Messiah that is to come, the great king that is to come. There you find, it says that he will establish a kingdom upon the earth in which it will be unimaginable, health. The people will be just great. The crops will be great. The troubles that uh, between the animal kingdom and people, that's going to be done away with. That's the great kingdom that's coming to this earth. And when Jesus healed people during this time of his ministry, that was just a foreshadowing of the great kingdom that would one day come. Well, as he was on his way, there were others that came. There were those that followed and they were healed and they believed in him. Many people were healed by Jesus that didn't believe in him. But then there is this other group, this notorious, ever-present other group. Verse 3 says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. Now, the Pharisees also came. Uh, They were always following him. They were always trying to discredit his ministry. They were Jealous of the popularity that he had. And so you find them often following Jesus around. Now we go all the way back to the third chapter, and there we see them before Jesus even began his ministry. They were harassing John the Baptist at his baptism. And John, of course, is the one who introduced Christ. So we see them in the third chapter. In the fifth chapter, they're there again at the Sermon on the Mount. They're in the crowds that listen to Jesus preach that great sermon. We find them in the ninth chapter, and in the 12th chapter, and the 15th chapter, and the 16th chapter. And here they are once again in these relentless attempts to try to sabotage the ministry of Jesus. Now, this was really a resilient bunch. They never were able... To get the best of Jesus, I mean, and on every exchange that they had with him, they always got the worst end of the stick, you might say. They were supposed to be the great teachers of the law. They're ones that were so learned in Scripture, but they never faced Jesus on any doctrinal question where he didn't shame them. And where they didn't have to walk away like a little puppy dog with their tails tucked between their legs. Because Jesus just humiliated their their knowledge of the Scriptures. But they just kept coming back for this humiliation over and over again. And you wonder why. Why did they do that? But here they are again. And the Scripture says they came tempting him. They came to put him to the test to see if this time they could crack him. Maybe this time they'll get one over on him. And they were always coming with their insincere questions. They weren't really interested in the answers that he gave, to believe them, of course, but just to trip him up. And here they ask a question, as they usually did, a question that no matter what answer that he gave, he would have to give an unpopular answer. It's sort of like that age-old question, when did you stop beating your wife? You can't answer that question in a good way. There's no way to do that. There's a bad answer in it. Well, this time they came asking him about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And that question reveals their common practice. This is what they did. And there was no way that Jesus could answer that question without making somebody mad. Now, you know this about Jesus. He was never afraid of controversy. Churches and preachers today are afraid of controversy they want to keep everybody happy so they straddle the fence on a lot of different issues and really never get to the truth they want to keep people happy and so when you come to places in scripture that are very unpopular they just skip over those and they don't talk about it this is why you don't hear preachers today preaching about the common sins of the people now you can go and you can hear somebody say you know it's wrong for you to murder somebody And it's wrong for you to steal from somebody. And it's wrong for you to do this or to do that. But they never get down to those common, ordinary sins that the people do because they don't want to make anybody mad. So when was the last time that you ever heard in church a preacher preach on the subject of divorce? When did you last hear a preacher talk about somebody's anger being like murder? That's what Jesus said. When did you hear him preach about lust that's in the heart? And he says that's like adultery. When do you hear preachers talking about hell and telling them that this is telling the people that it's the destiny of every person without Christ, without exception? If people do not know Jesus Christ, they will die and go to hell. When do you hear preachers say that your sins have separated you from God and the wrath of God is on you rather than telling people all the time, oh, smile, God loves you. When do you hear those subjects? Well, they don't preach those things anymore because they're controversial. You see, the congregation is involved in those kind of battles every single day of their lives. They're fighting sin in their lives, but preachers don't want to talk about it because they don't want anybody to feel too guilty about it. And so you hear them say, Oh, oh, oh we don't want to talk about that because people are just feel too badly about themselves already. It's just too negative. We can't talk about that. Well, people may feel badly about it, but not one millionth of how badly they'll feel when someday they open their eyes in the eternity of hell. This is why we need to tell people about sin. But Jesus never had that problem. He didn't care if they didn't like his answers. And I promise you that he was going to indict someone with his answers. He wasn't going to straddle the fence and try to keep everybody happy. And so there were a lot of mashed toes after Jesus' sermons because he was interested in only one thing, and that is truth. He taught the truth. And he showed how often they had strayed so far away from the truth that every time they opened their mouths, every word that fell from their mouths condemned them. So they came to him with this question, is it all right for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, they asked him about divorce because they knew it was a loaded question. It was especially loaded because of where they were and because they already knew his answer. They knew that Jesus would give a very conservative answer because he'd already talked about this way back in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the subject of divorce came up in chapter 5 of Matthew Jesus said, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now that is a loaded question for two reasons. Number one, they were in Perea. And this is the area that was governed by Herod Antipas. Herod had his desert fortress at Machaerus that was there in Perea. And who was it that was kept in the dungeon at Machaerus? Well, we learned in the 11th chapter that John the Baptist had been put into prison. And then in the 14th chapter, we learned why he was put into prison. John was kept in the dungeon at Machaerus because he boldly spoke out against Herod Antipas. What Herod had done is he had stolen his brother Philip's wife, and he was in an incestuous relationship with her. He married her, and John the Baptist called him out on it. He called that wickedness, and so Herod put him into prison and then had his head cut off. Now, what do you think the Pharisees wanted to happen to Jesus? What if they could get him to say something inflammatory as he's traveling through Perea? Maybe he would say something against Herod on this subject and maybe Herod would do the same thing to him that he did to John the Baptist and they would be rid of him forever. And then it was a loaded question, secondly, because of the differences of the opinions of the people. You see, there was a rabbi by the name of Hillel, that was very influential at that time. He died about 20 years before this, but his teachings were still very popular. And he said that divorce could be had for any reason. That if a man didn't like something that his wife did, that he could dump her for anything. So if she burned her to- his toast in the morning, then she'd better look out. Pack your bags, because that's a reason to get a divorce. If she raised her voice in an argument so that the neighbors could hear her. That was a cause for divorce. Now, here in our area, over in Katati, you do that and they'll come and tase you for it, for raising your voice to your wife. And if a man saw that his... or saw another woman that was prettier than his wife, then he could divorce her. Now, Rabbi Hillel had a very liberal viewpoint about this, and the Pharisees mostly followed his teachings... And they were guilty as they could be of the very things that Jesus is talking about. So many divorces. Even the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, maybe some of you have heard his name, Josephus had a divorce that was sanctioned by the teachings of Hillel. Now, on the other hand, there was another rabbi. And his rabbi, this rabbi's name was Shemai, and he took a very conservative approach. See, in the first century, there were... There were two opposing schools on the issue of divorce. You had Rabbi Hillel, and you had Rabbi Shemai, And these two houses had three about 300 different points of debate on different issues, and this is one of them. Now, it so happens that Rabbi Shemai was very conservative in his approach, and he actually agreed with Jesus. Now, there were hundreds of other things that he didn't agree with Jesus on, but this one thing he did agree. He said that divorce could be had for only one cause, and that is the cause of adultery. So that was actually the least popular opinion, but there were people that did hold that opinion. And so no matter how Jesus answered the question, somebody is going to be angry at the answer. Well, they knew his position, and they knew that Perea was not a good place for Jesus to make his views known. Well, we come to his answer in verses 4 through 6. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." Now, what you've been listening to so far is introduction. Now we're ready to get into the question at hand. What did Jesus teach about divorce? Well, he didn't answer the question directly at first, but instead he wanted to talk about the institution of marriage. Now, they wanted to talk about divorce, but Jesus wanted to talk about marriage. You see, before you can answer a question about the legitimate causes for divorce then you have to look into the Bible and say, what is actually God's intention for marriage? Now, there's a very specific scripture that the Pharisees had in mind, and we're going to touch on it for just a minute. We don't have time to deal with it today, but we will come back to it. It comes up in uh, verse number 7. And their place of reference was in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And I'd like you to turn there if you would. Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24, last book of the Pentateuch deuteronomy now they had this particular place in mind and they thought that this would give support to their opinion and they would be able to prove that jesus was wrong what did moses have to say about divorce well we look in deuteronomy 24 verse number one when a man hath taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he had found some uncleanness in her Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now they were referring to the law. Remember, Deuteronomy actually means second law. It's the repetition of the law. So here we have God's law in Deuteronomy. Now, as you know, Jesus will always uphold the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, he made that very clear. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law Till all be fulfilled. So if Jesus were to go contrary to the law, He would refute both God and Moses. So how can he claim that he's upholding the law? when his views on divorce seemed to be different than what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. Well, you'll just have to keep wondering about that because we'll have to come back to it later. Jesus, at this point, did not want to talk about Moses, and he didn't want to talk about divorce. He wanted to talk about God and about marriage first. And so rather than go to Deuteronomy, he went to Genesis. So he doesn't want to talk about divorce. He wants to talk about marriage. So he goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the institution of marriage, to find out what happened when it all started. Now, even the Jews thought that the earliest commands were the most important. And so Jesus took them back to the creation, to the very beginning of it all. So he went back to Genesis, and he said, Have ye not read? Now, that was a slam right up front to their education. Have you not read? or Aren't you familiar with this? Well, of course they were familiar. They hadn't done anything but read the Scriptures. The only problem is they didn't understand it very well. They spent all their time reading but not understanding. And what Genesis teaches is just the very elementary things of God. These are easy things, but when you're dealing with unbelievers, you're dealing with people that have no capacity to really understand the Word of God. That takes Holy Spirit guidance in salvation. So here you have these self-proclaimed experts, just like you have in the world today. I mean, how many times have you argued with an unbeliever about Scripture, and here are some of the things that they have to say. They don't have any spiritual discernment. They're very selective in their quoting of Scripture, especially quoting Jesus. Well, they talk about tolerance, and they talk about how Jesus was always loving and he was tolerant. But they don't understand that Jesus was actually the most intolerant person that ever lived. You know why? Because there wasn't anything that was okay with him except what agreed perfectly with the word of God. So you don't get any passes on sin with Jesus. Nobody gets by without repenting of your sin. Did you know that? And in John chapter 5, it tells us there that Jesus is not only intolerant of sin, but he will be the judge of the unrepentant and will be the one that casts them into the fires of hell. So you can put that into your medical bong and smoke it. So they read all this, and they didn't understand it. Now, notice something very important before we get to the meaning of the teachings. Jesus said, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses, wasn't it? But Jesus said that what Moses wrote is what God said. Now, what Jesus did was to affirm that the scriptures are the word of God. So God didn't say, and Jesus didn't say, now Moses wrote this, and I agree with him. No, this is not God and Moses writing scripture. Moses wrote down what God said. And this is the way we see Jesus always affirming that the Scriptures are the Word of God. He always treated the Bible this way, that this is God's Word and it's infallible. Now, do you think that Jesus told the truth? Does a good man ever tell tell a lie? Well, if you believe he's a good man, then you must also believe, as he said, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Jesus always approached Scripture that way. He says, have you not read now, first then we see that marriage was designed by God. Now, obviously, Jesus is talking about marriage because you can't answer a question about divorce without assuming there is a marriage. So in the beginning, he said God made them male and female. That's what it says in Genesis one twenty-seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, created he him, male and female, Created he them. So God designed marriage. The one that thought of this was God. He's the one that put the first family together. Marriage is not an evolution of society. Marriage was begun by God, and God started it with one man and one woman. Now, right away, you can see that polygamy was never a part of this. That's not part of God's design. God made one man and one woman. Now, God could have created one man and ten women. Adam would have had a hard time with all the missing ribs, but God could have done that if he wanted to. Then God could have created two men, and the human race would have ended right there, and none of us would be here today. I mean, how how ridiculous is it to think that there could be such a thing as a same-sex marriage? That is a misnomer. It's a misnomer of the worst kind. That can't be a marriage. Call it whatever you want, but you can't call it a marriage. And folks, you can't call a group of religious people that get together and sanctions that and perform ceremonies, call them anything that you want, but don't you call them a church because they're not a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is against the principles of God's word. Now, even the wicked Pharisees, they had enough sense not to come and ask a stupid question like, can two men marry each other? They're not asking those kinds of questions. They knew better. And we don't even have to look at the Bible to know better than that, do we? I mean, you look at the dunghill of Greek and Roman societies and how they crumbled under their moral decay and ask that question, can two men or two women marry each other? Look at the devastation of society in our country and see if that makes any sense. Now God designed it, one woman for one man, and that's a marriage according to the one who founded marriage. All else is vile and sinful and degrading and immoral and corrupt. Now you'll notice then what Jesus said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Now there he takes them to Genesis 2, verse 24, which says the same thing. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Secondly, marriage is declared by God. Marriage is declared when God puts two people together. Here it says that a man leaves his father and his mother, and he cleaves to his wife. Now, cleave is really an interesting word. It means a bond, and it actually means to be stuck together like glue. Not Elmer's glue, like super glue. Stuck together like glue. Actually, the word cleave comes from the very same word that we get glue. Have you ever stuck two fingers together with super glue? You can't get them apart without tearing the flesh, can you? So God puts two people together in a marriage and the Bible teaches they become one flesh. So it's no longer two people. In God's eyes, it's one person. What God has done is created a new unit, one new person. And that's what marriage is. So in a marriage, you don't talk about what I do and what she wants to do. You talk about we. Our thoughts are together. Our hopes are together Our desires are together. You know, you have people in marriages that say, oh, I want to be my own person. No, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that because you become one flesh. And folks, that has all kinds of implications that go with it. You're like one body. God has created one person. He put it together. One author said, they look at each other differently. They're not just friends, but they are one flesh. They have been divinely united to each other in a way that they will never be with anyone else. Everything that affects one affects the other. Every decision made incorporates the whole. Each contribution to strengthening spiritual, material, and emotional needs increases the overall strength of both. But to tear away at the relationship is the ripping of one's flesh, a severing of the limbs and tissue and organs that make the whole. In light of the Pharisees' question, Jesus wanted them to understand what it is really involved when a man and woman unite in marriage lest they treat it too casually and tritely. Now let me ask you, what happens when you cut off part of your body? Is it possible for you to get two complete people when you cut off a part of your body? Well, you know better than that. And the Bible teaches that when God puts two people together, it's a new creation, and you can't split that up and make it anything like what God made any longer. The Bible is teaching us that divorce is as unnatural as trying to split your body in half in order to make two complete people. You can't do it. It is a unique bond, and it can't be broken. Thirdly, disobedience invites disaster. Now look at the solemn warning of verse 6. Wherefore, they are no more twain, that is two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God put it together. Husband and wife are one flesh. And he continues with a very solemn warning that tampering with what God has put together is, is going to bring disaster now it's a very frightful warning it's scary I wouldn't want to be on the end of an affair that breaks up another marriage but yet you hear about that all the time I mean Hollywood glories in that movies are made about that I mean this is entertainment for us today let's watch television let's watch the movies and we see marriages torn apart everywhere and affairs going on everywhere But the wrath of God will come down on your head because of this. Are you going to pull apart what God put together? It's so unnatural that we can see in our own society that lives are destroyed many times by this. I mean, how do you tear families apart and make that good for society? What about children? I mean, children, I mean, people cast away their marriages and they leave their kids to twist in the wind and they're the casualties of all this, but everybody looks like it, oh, that's just so much collateral damage. You know, I shudder how that God is going to look at this in the judgment. And we tend to think of how bad it's going to be for murderers and rapists and child molesters. But what about those that have molested family relationships? What about those that selfishly let children suffer because they couldn't contain their lust and they went after someone else? We're just looking at the whole picture wrong, that this is horribly sinful and we're going to suffer the wrath of God at judgment for it. Now, folks, this is why preachers don't talk about it. And that's because you cannot frame this in God's terms without coming away with severe guilt. Preachers don't preach about it you know why? Because divorce statistics are the same in the church as it is outside of the church. And so when a preacher looks at his congregation, it's very likely half of the people have been divorced. Well, what are you going to do about it? I don't want you, How are we going to fix the problem? Do you fix it by tearing apart what God put together? Do you fix it by preachers stop preaching about it? and stop telling people it's sin, and stop calling people to repentance? Do we expect the world is going to fix the problem? I mean, I mean, what, what are they doing? The world is blindly trying to figure out what marriage is in the first place. Men marrying men, and women marrying women. How are they going to have the wherewithal to solve this? All that they're doing is just plunging us into a deep a, 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 a morass, a, an abyss, Poisoning society to the nth degree with all of this. Who's going to do something about it? It has to be God's children. It has to be God's people. God's preachers have to be like Jesus. Preach about it no matter how badly it's hated. No matter how much hot water it gets you into. You have to preach it. So what do we do? Well, I don't have time to finish the message. There's a lot more to go here. But I will give you a little bit of a look into the future. We've already learned this. God forgives sin. Thank God for the provision that he made at Calvary. Thank God that he gives forgiveness and it's bigger than anything that we've ever done against him. God forgives it all. So what do you do? You confess the sin and you repent of it. And you ask God to make your marriage what it should be Make it so it honors and glorifies him. You see, you might be here today, and I'm sorry that if I offend somebody about talking about divorce, but you may be here divorced, and your marriage started out wrongly because you had a divorce, but it doesn't have to continue that way. It doesn't have to stay that way. It doesn't have to end that way because God forgives. This is a sin that people need to ask forgiveness for. Ask for forgiveness. And the Bible says that Jesus will wash you as white as snow. This is a great place for Jesus to take up the issue of marriage and divorce because it comes right after the parable on forgiveness. And how badly do people today need forgiveness? They need forgiveness of this sin. So it's not my purpose to make you go away feeling horrible today as if this thing cannot be righted and I'm never going to be right in the sight of God. I've done such a terrible thing. No, God forgives sin. You just ask God to forgive you and to make it right and go on and make the marriage that you have one that stands for God and honors him. That's what God's people have to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've looked into your word today, and we are tackling a subject that is very, very difficult, one that touches over just really just about every family in the United States today almost every family and church has been affected in some way by divorce lord help us to understand what you intended and help us to look to you for the answers to our family problems those that have never been divorced help them keep their families together help them to rely upon you help them to trust you in all circumstances and not to let their eyes and their hearts wander, to think about what is your intention, to have a forgiving spirit to do everything that it takes to hold a marriage together. And then those who are here that have been divorced, we're not condemning people just uh, any more than Jesus condemned those who asked for repentance. It's a sin that can be forgiven of, but first of all, we have to recognize it is sin. The Bible tells us that it is. And we thank you, Lord, that you do forgive all sin. We pray for our people today. We pray for our church. We pray for our country. Help us to deal with this very important issue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.